Please open your Bibles to the 24th and final chapter of Luke. Our long study of Luke is nearing its end. This morning we will look um, at one of the final encounters in Luke 24 as we see the risen Lord dispels all doubts. The risen Lord dispels all doubts. To begin this morning by reading our text and actually starting a few verses earlier. Back to verse 31 through verse 43. Luke chapter 24. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed, has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet and it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Lord God, I am amazed at the patience, the condescension, the meekness of our Lord. His disciples, he told them repeatedly in in Jesus' earthly ministry, they've had repeated proofs, and yet here, We see your Lord dispelling all doubts, bearing with their weakness, their frailty, and their infirmity. And you've recorded it for us. And I can only think that in part that is to bear with our weakness and our doubts and our infirmities. So Lord, we pray that this text, I pray that this text would give us a greater confidence in the resurrection of your son. Give us a greater joy and cause us to live with greater faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach the end of Luke's gospel, um, this morning we will see the the risen Lord finally dispel all the doubts of the disciples. All the way through this chapter, up until this text, and including this text, the disciples have been slow to believe, disbelieving in the resurrection. And we've seen our Lord patiently, gently, relentlessly pursue them and bring them to faith. First, the women went to the tomb, encountered the angel, and they went back and told the eleven and the disciples with them, and they disregarded it out of hand. These words seemed to them an idle tale, verse 11. That was the first proof or evidence, an empty tomb that they rose and saw. Then two of the disciples returned to Emmaus, and Jesus joins their group. They don't recognize him. And he opens the scriptures to them over a two or three hour walk, proving, showing 
Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Then at the meal, he breaks the bread. They recognize him. He disappears miraculously. These guys, at the end of a long journey, get up and head back to Jerusalem. Our Lord is orchestrating events so that as best as we can tell, on the night of the first Resurrection Sunday or Easter, we don't know how long in the dark it would take these disciples to return the seven miles. So it could be early the next morning. But most likely late that night, he's got all of the 11 together, all the disciples together, and both groups, when they join, have the same confession. While Jesus was on the road, while these men walked and listened to Jesus, the other disciples have come to the same conclusion. So last week we saw the surprisingly similar confession. So that the two disciples, verse 33, arose, returned that hour. They think they've got the scoop. They think they've got the news of the century. They arrive to find the rest of the disciples saying the same thing. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And so the disciples are together. You can imagine their joy, their excitement, as each group tells the other what's happened. And then something even more remarkable happens. The crescendo of this narrative, the Lord himself suddenly appears. And we're going to look at that in verses 36 to 37. Jesus' sudden appearance. Then we're going to look at Jesus' first proof and Jesus' second proof. And that really is, I think, Luke's narrative concern here. Dispelling all doubts. Giving final, complete, concrete proof of the reality of the resurrection of our Lord. So you can imagine the raised voices, the excitement, the, the sharing of news amongst these disciples. And Luke says, while they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And so his appearance, the first point here, while they were discussing or announcing, sorry, while they were announcing, the, the of doesn't even work there, does it? While they were speaking, of his resurrection. There we go. Third time's the While they're speaking of the resurrection. So this is a narrative way of showing a climax. This is the, the peak of the event, narratively speaking. We've gotten everyone back together. We've got everyone on the same page. We've got everyone making the same confession. And in that moment, Jesus himself appears. We get some more insight into the resurrection body here. Jesus can be where he wants to be. He can disappear from where he wants to disappear And yet, again, anticlimactically, despite the fact that on their lips is this confession. I mean, look at verse 44. They found all of them. We'll go back to verse 33. It makes it clear who's speaking. They arose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together saying. So the 11 and those gathered together with them are saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And this group, convinced of this, then meets the two disciples who tell of Jesus appearing on the road to Emmaus, Jesus' disappearance. Everyone together, the Lord's risen indeed. He appears, and they don't believe it. Luke stresses, point two, that it is Jesus himself. This is the second time, and I'll make more of this later. In verse 14. In verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself. It's a way of, again, emphasizing to Theophilus, there's no mistake, there's no question. Jesus himself, not an appearance of Jesus, not a vision of Jesus. The Lord himself appears. And Jesus greets them. Peace to you. 
which is a remarkably profound greeting. The Hebrew would have been shalom, of course. Our Lord has just bought their peace and our peace. According to Romans 5, 1, being justified by faith, we are having peace with God. It was announced that the Lord would bring peace as early as Luke 2, 14. What did the angels announce? The shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Um, the apostolic preaching of the cross is summarized this way in Acts 10, 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So it is the standard Jewish greeting, but this side of the cross, surely it takes on some extra weight. It's no longer simply a well-wishing Jesus has purchased, furnished, provided their peace. And he looks at these startled disciples and says, peace to you. Now their response is the disciples react mistakenly. The disciples react mistakenly. And I suppose we could forgive their initial um, confusion. It's, it's a sudden, unexpected thing to see Jesus appear. And we read, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And again, I, I think if someone suddenly appeared right here in this room, we, I, we can understand the startledness of it and the, maybe the shock or the, ah, someone jumps out at you. But after they have a chance to comprehend and take it in, you'd think, given what they've just been professing, just been um, announcing to each other, that they would understand the Lord has appeared. But no, they think they're seeing a spirit. We're again seeing their slowness, their dullness, their, their lack of insight prior to Jesus commissioning and empowering them. That's what's partly going to make as we look next week at verse 45 and verse 49. Look at verse 45 and 49. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then verse 49, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. And, and those two empowerments are going to be critical in the transformation of the apostles and the disciples from this dull so make no mistake, we'd be just as dull. It's not that they're particularly dull. But Luke is emphasizing their slowness to believe, their dullness without the empowerment of the Spirit, without their minds being open to understand the Scriptures. And they think they're seeing a spirit, perhaps something like the spirit of Samuel summoned up by the witch of Endor at the end of First Samuel in 28. So that's the first piece. Jesus appears. At the climax of their confession, and yet we see even as they're confessing he's risen, they fully haven't grasped it. They're not fully on board. They're, they're thinking they're seeing a spirit. And so what's going to happen in the next few verses is our Lord is going to again demonstrate his meekness and his patience. One would think that surely there's been enough proof now. But no, he is going to bear with them. And Luke, in recording this and relating this to Theophilus, is, is showing both the certainty of the resurrection and our Lord's gentleness in serving us, in knowing that our frame is weak, we are but dust. And so Jesus will offer two proofs. Is this really him in the flesh? And first we'll look at the first proof, verses 38 through 40. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Jesus asked them two questions. 
The first one, you're blank there, is emotions, dealing with their emotions, their, their state of their affections. Why are you troubled? Why are you distraught? They should be excited. They should be rejoicing. The Lord who is risen that they just confessed, he's here. No, they're, they're terrified, bewildered, perplexed. And then he addresses their thinking. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Because they're not just feeling things, they're thinking things. And both their feelings and their thinking are off. What should be a cause of joy is a cause of terror, confusion, and instead of thinking this is either further proof, this is further confirmation, they're, they're thinking they're seeing a spirit. So those are just questions. It's a gentle rebuke again. Why are you troubled? Suggesting you shouldn't be troubled. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? You shouldn't have doubts arising in your hearts. And then he furnishes his first proof of the demonstration. He invites them to see and to touch his hands and feet. See my hands and my feet, and it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, interestingly, this passage and John 20, 25 are the only two texts that make it clear Jesus was nailed to the cross. We know historically the Romans sometimes would just tie people to the cross. But here, and even more emphatically in John um, 20, no, sorry, in John where are we? There we go. John 20, 25. We make it clear Jesus was nailed to the cross. Some more historical verification and facts. He invites them to see and touch his hands and feet. He's showing them the wounds of the cross. And again, who else could this be who's evidently survived a crucifixion? You don't survive Roman crucifixion? And Jesus himself insists, therefore, that he is not a mere spirit. So he invites them to look at him, to see, and even to touch, to verify. Now this is going to be picked up. If you turn, turn to 1 John. This left an impression, lasting impression, at the very least, on the beloved disciple John. I want you to see the way he starts his first epistle. So Jesus says, look and see, touch, see the I myself. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you. So he's got, I heard him, I saw him, I touched him. And so this proof, at the very least for John, was significant. And again, this is the Lord of glory, the author of creation, the only begotten of the Father, and these bumbling, dullard disciples are invited to touch him. This is our Lord's meekness and gentleness. And he loves these men, and even as he corrects them, he invites them with that demonstration. What is their response then? 
the disciples disbelieve for joy, which I take to mean they're almost there. You ever hear news that's so good, you have a hard time believing it. You don't want to be disappointed again. I think that's what's going on here, something similar to when the early church was holding an all-night prayer vigil for the apostle Peter, who had been put into jail. And you remember an angel came and released him, and Peter actually shows up to the very house where the prayer meeting is happening, knocks on the door, and the servant girl opens the door. <clears throat> and in Acts 12, 14, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. The servant girl so overjoyed, she forgets to open the door and runs, the disciples here, I think something that's happening, that the penny is dropping. They're disbelieving for joy, which is why our Lord, I believe, moves on to one final proof. As they see and as they touch him, as they see the wounds, Jesus' second proof. He asks them a question. It's a rather interesting question. Do you have anything to eat? <laughs> Again, I, I, as I've been studying this passage, this is the Lord of glory who's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to return and fight the nations of the world with a sword from his mouth. And look at his meekness and gentleness and patience with his beloved disciples. Anyone got anything to eat around here? While they're still but disbelieving for joy and marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in front of them. Question, have you anything to eat? Jesus eats broiled fish before them. Presumably this further adds to it. The, the, the fish was here. The fish disappears. Now Luke doesn't explicitly record their response, but I think that lack of recording the response is itself the response. Every step along the way, Luke has recorded their unbelief. So back in verse uh, 10, now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, and the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to apostles. Their response but these words seem to them an idle tale. And then we get the report of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Verse 19. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and then crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And there is no further mention of response Jesus is going to move on to a commissioning uh, in verse 44 through 49, which we'll begin to look at next week. There, there's no more doubting. So, so I, I take it that they're finally on board. They're finally on board. The disciples have no more doubts. They are convinced. They're, they're just cresting into full acceptance and belief at the end of the first proof. This second proof now eating food in front of them pushes them over the edge they are fully convinced. And so our Lord dispels all doubts. And with the time we have left this morning, I want to consider why, why do this. What's the significance of this? Why is Luke stressed so inordinately the physical resurrection of our Lord? That's, that's the key. This isn't a spiritual resurrection. Jesus didn't just rise in our hearts. Luke is emphasizing Again and again, a physical body that can be seen, that can be touched, that can eat food. And he's also emphasizing the disciples' slowness to understand. If you turn back over to 1 John, I think there's two big reasons why those two truths are so important 
to hammer home. Now, we saw at the beginning of 1 John, John emphasized his own tactile interaction with Jesus. I've touched him. I've seen him. I've heard him. Turn over to chapter 4 of 1 John. Interestingly, we get some insight into some of the earliest Christian heresies in the early church. The earliest was not the denial of the deity of Jesus. That would come later in Arianism. But the earliest Christological heresy, heresy about Christ, was the denial of his humanity. See, in Greek thought, which Plato had hugely influenced, the material world is bad. It's fundamentally flawed. It's broken. But the spiritual world, the world of thoughts and ideas, the noumenal world, that was where perfection was located. And so God might come down and appear human, look human, but he surely couldn't be human. And so John, in strong terms, writes this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4, 1 and 2 and 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So why emphasize the bodily resurrection of Jesus? That's in the box down at the bottom. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Why is that such a big deal? Well, it's the earliest, from what we can tell, Christian heresy And according to John, this is a a doctrine that puts you either inside or outside of the camp. There are not many such statements in the New Testament. As staunchly as I believe in inerrancy, I don't think the Bible says you have to believe in inerrancy to be saved. As staunchly as I believe in many other doctrines, I'd be hesitant to say, okay, if you get this one wrong, you're not a Christian. John says right here, you can don't confess Jesus has come in the flesh. You're playing for the Antichrist team. There's not many such black and white statements in the New Testament. This is one of them. And so the real humanity of Jesus is critical to the gospel message. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So that's one of the reasons why this is so important. And we could spend weeks unpacking why, but I'd like to just look at one passage to get seven reasons why. 1 Corinthians 15, if you turn there. 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the longest single discussion of the resurrection, its importance and its implications in the Bible. And at the Corinthian church, among its other problems and errors, were some who were denying the resurrection. They hadn't actually gotten around to denying the resurrection of Jesus. Rather, they're just denying the afterlife. This is probably creeping in through the Sadducees. We know, Luke tells us, they don't believe in a resurrection. So there was a version of Judaism that just saw Judaism as existing for this life only. It seems reasonable. My guess would be some of those who converted to confess belief in Jesus as Messiah might have brought some of those things in. 
Let's not worry about pie in the sky. Let's just worry about what good we can do here and now, something like that. And so Paul takes it head on. Head on. I want to begin at the beginning of the chapter. We'll focus on verses 12 through 19. Because in the beginning, we get a wonderful summary of the gospel message. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And praise be to God, he will hold us fast. Amen? Amen. Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Then we get to the, the critical doctrinal issue. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection? So the error in the Corinthian church was not the denial of Jesus' resurrection. Rather, it was just the denial of a resurrection afterlife anyway. It's also possible they believed in a only spiritual afterlife. But what they're denying is the general bodily resurrection of believers, which is clearly taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what Paul does is a form of reasoning called reductum absurdio. When you, you do this, I'm sure, all the time. It's, that's the name of the form. You take your opponent's premise, and you say, well, if that's true, then these other things must be entailments that come with it. These other things have to be true as well. So let's take your premise for a moment, and we'll demonstrate your premise is false by showing that it yields absurd conclusions. That's what Paul will do. So he does that starting in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Well, then not even Christ is raised. That's the first entailment. If the dead aren't raised, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus isn't raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, and not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. So Paul lists seven realities, necessary correlatives, entailments of the belief that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that the dead are not raised. I just want to look at them briefly. First, in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What we're doing here this morning, what I'm doing particularly, pointless. Give it up. Second, your faith is in vain. If the dead are not raised and Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. 
This goes against the notion that Christianity is something good to get families locked together. It's, it gives life purpose and meaning. No. If it's not a historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, this faith is, is useless. As C.S. Lewis once famously said, Christianity of false is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's either worthless or it changes everything. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. Verse 15, number three, if Christ has not been raised, we are found to be misrepresenting God, literally bearing false witness, because we testified of God that he raised Christ. If Christ isn't raised, then the Bible's lying. Let's just throw that away. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Number four, verse 17. Number five, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. The resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus is crucial to our forgiveness of sins. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep, those who have already died in Christ have perished. All, all the ones who have come before us, our loved ones who died trusting in Christ, have perished in hell if Christ is not raised. In verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all men most to be pitied. And I hope it's starting to make sense why Luke would emphasize so clearly the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Christianity, I've said this before, stands or falls in the resurrection of Jesus. You, you could destroy Christianity if you could disprove the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there's nothing else of value here. We are of all men the most to be pitied. So, so don't think of this faith as something fundamental that gives meaning or a set of ethics or values or community. That's all secondary. Yeah, there's community that comes from faith in Jesus. Yes, there's an ethic that comes from faith in Jesus. Yes, that's true. But first and foremost, it's about a claim of who Jesus is and what he did. And if there is no resurrection, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, get verse 19, we are of all people the most to be pitied. And so I, I would encourage you, if you have any doubts about the resurrection of our Lord, to settle them. You've seen our Lord's patience, his willingness to furnish proof to his disciples, his condescension, he bears with them. But at the end of the day, you've got to make up your mind. And you've got to live according to what you believe. And Luke, writing to Theophilus, if you remember the introduction to Luke, he says he's written these things that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke has repeatedly emphasized Jesus rose bodily from the grave. This is some of the reason why. Why it matters. Um, there's a second reality that Luke has emphasized I want to talk about briefly as well, and that is the disciples were very slow to believe in the resurrection, right? I mean, he told them over and over again, let this sink into your ears. They had the report of the women they had the empty tomb. They had Jesus himself appear in their midst. They're still doubting. Finally, he lets them see, touch him. He eats in front of them, and they come to believe. 
Why emphasize that? Well, first, Christianity was not their idea. Christianity was not their idea. You see, some people have argued that the disciples so wanted to believe in the resurrection, they were so broken and so confused and so sad that they just made up the resurrection. They so wanted it to be true. But the documents show the exact opposite to be the reality. They, were the, they had to be persuaded over multiple encounters. Christianity was not their invention. If you're trying to start a religion to gain power or credence, you don't make your founders look like idiots while they're still alive. But that's what the Gospels do. They show the foolishness, the weakness, the frailty of the disciples, just like you and me, right? And it's not their idea. They're the last people to get on board with the resurrection. And that's important. This isn't fabricated. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. As Peter gets ready to die, he emphasizes this point. Starting in verse 12, 2 Peter chapter 1. He knows he's going to die. He writes this letter so that they can bring to remembrance these truths. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall at any time these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke by God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter's emphatic that we didn't make this up. This isn't a clever. We saw it. We're witnesses. I remember discussing with one of my unbelieving friends once this, this problem. Um, if you're going to deny the resurrection, if you're going to deny Christianity, you've got to come up with some plausible reason why 11 men would all go to their painful deaths other than the Apostle John, who still suffered greatly. Church history makes it clear that all 10 of, of the others um, were martyred. We know about the persecutions in the early church. They weren't gaining riches. They weren't having their best life now. They weren't driving around in limos. They were, as Paul says, the scum of the earth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the question is, what would drive a man to do that? And because of their claim to have seen and to touch and to have heard, what you can't write it off as is they believed a lie. We've seen people do remarkable things because they believe a lie. Someone tells them some false teaching. 
They come to believe things that are untrue and they fly planes into buildings. Or they go, you know, join a, a cult like David Koresh or something. But that can't be the case here because they either did or did not see Jesus rise from the dead. That They would know, in other words, if what they're believing is false. And as they slowly die one by one, they'd know the fate that awaited them. It's not like they gathered together and went down in a blaze of glory. So, so what possible psychological motivation can be given for why these men would be beaten, chased, jailed, imprisoned, beheaded, killed, all for the testimony of the resurrection of the dead, when they would have to know whether it was true or false. They could not be deceived on the point. Christianity was not their idea, yet they were willing to die for the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. And a final point... Um, turn to Acts 4. That Luke makes very clear in emphasizing their weakness is Christianity did not spread by their power. Uh, that's the other thing you've got to come up with is if this isn't from God, if this isn't true, how did it get such a grip on the world? These are not sophisticated men, at least not most of them. These are fishermen. These are Judean peasants. Their opposition took note of this in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to look at the, uh, the, let's pick it up in verse 9, no, 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to this crippled man, remember that this guy had been healed, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you all. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the first opponents of the early church recognized these are not powerful, sophisticated men. The gospel spreads not through the wisdom and ingenuity and cleverness of the early church as they came up with a marketing program for Christianity. It spread through the power of God. How much did it spread? Turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. Pick up in verse 5. Paul and Silas are at Thessalonica. The Jews there don't like it, what they're preaching. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Already, 
That's the announcement of the gospel spread, that this news of a crucified, resurrected Messiah has turned the world upside down. God accomplished through these men that we see being so slow to believe. Which, of course, does at least two things. gives God the glory, the credit, and it gives hope for people like us who are just as slow and thick-headed. So I I really hope that this morning um, that you settle in your mind where you stand in the resurrection of Jesus. If he is raised from the dead, then he is the Lord of glory. He deserves your honor, your obedience, your fealty, your loyalty, your praise, your worship. If he's not, you are wasting your time here this morning, and you took a dangerous drive here for nothing. Now, thankfully, he is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. But that reality then changes everything because the disciples get transformed from the people we see here in chapter 24 to the bold proclaimers of the resurrection in the book of Acts. I'm going to call the worship team up in a moment, but I just want to give you 10 consequences of the resurrection. John Piper helpfully gathered together 10 um, biblical so what's of the resurrection, in addition to the ones you've already seen, I'm going to read and we'll sing our closing song. Here are ten amazing things we owe to the resurrection of Jesus. One, a Savior who can never die again. Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Second, we get granted an option to repent towards God. Acts 5, 30-31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. Because of the resurrection, there is a new birth. Acts, I mean, First Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of the resurrection, there is forgiveness of sin. If Christ has not been raised, we just read, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Flip that over, because he has been raised, our faith is worth something and effective. We are not still in our sins. Because of the resurrection, we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 32-33. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses Being therefore exalted and at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Further, in Romans 8, we are told that because of the resurrection, there is no condemnation for the elect. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We have Jesus' personal fellowship and protection. In the Great Commission in Matthew, he sends them out and says, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have proof of coming judgment. Acts 17, 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we have salvation from the future wrath of God. According to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And finally, 
in Jesus' resurrection, we have the guarantee of our own resurrection from the dead. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So God has furnished many proofs. Jesus removes all doubts from the disciples. Luke records this to remove all doubts from Theophilus. And I've preached this and we've studied this that the Lord might remove all doubts from our hearts. Let us settle the matter and live in accordance with that truth. I'm going to invite the worship team up and we'll sing our closing song.